Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody, on a Wednesday, November the 16th, 2022, an endless Wednesday. I've done a lot of interviews today and been looking forward to this one. Um, a couple of weeks ago, uh, I had a conversation with Andrew Hill of the Financial Times, my favorite newspaper. And one of the favorite things in the newspaper is their annual business best books of the year. Um, we talked uh, when Andrew came on the show a couple of weeks ago, we talked about those best books. And I was rather thrilled that of the six on the shortlist, uh, four of them have been on the show. Gary Gerstle talking about neoliberalism, Sebastian Malaby on venture capitalism, uh, Chris Miller on the chip war, Helen Thompson on the 70s. Uh, and the book, though, that Andrew Hill kind of fancied for the prize, I'm not sure if he said this publicly or privately to me, was a book called Dead in the Water, Murder and Fraud in the World's Most Secretive Industry. I hadn't known much about the book, but it's a fascinating book, and I'm thrilled that we have one of its co-authors, Matthew Campbell, on the show. Matthew is based in Singapore. He works for uh, Bloomberg as an investigative reporter. Matthew, congratulations on the shortlist. Do you think you're going to win it? Uh, who knows? Uh, I think we have a decent shot, but all the books on the shortlist are fantastic. And I think uh, anyone who, who has a firm prediction of who's going to win will probably be proven wrong. Are you going to organize any murders or hijackings to make sure that you win? Uh, well, if there is one lesson of the book, uh, it is that you can get away with a fair bit. Uh, so... You know, it has changed my view on on kind of what some of the feasible tactics are to get what you want in, in this world. You can get away the old phrase, you can get away with murder, which is in, in a sense what this book is about, dead in the water. It reads like a thriller, Matt. So I don't want you to give away everything that you reported. You've done four years of reporting. It came out of an original Bloomberg piece that you wrote uh, with your co-author, um, uh, Kit Chanel in uh, in 2017, uh, but tell us a little bit about the story. Give us um, an appetizer, a little taste, so that people go out and read the book, buy the book, and read it. So, believe it or not, uh, this book all happened because of one incident, which unfolded over really just three or four hours in the summer of 2011, and that was a pirate attack or or an apparent pirate attack. Uh, on an oil tanker in the Gulf of Aden. And, and the apparent part becomes yeah, really July 2011 on a, in the Gulf of Aden um, uh, on a ship called the, an appropriately or inappropriately named Brillante Virtuoso. That's right. And basically, uh, this pirate attack was uh, investigated as big pirate attacks are because a, a large... Uh, marine incident like this is above all a big liability. There are a lot of insurers who are on the hook for a lot of money when a ship is destroyed, as it was in this case. Uh, so the investigator uh, for Lloyd's of London, the insurers, was a guy called David Mockett, uh, who was tragically killed uh, just about two weeks into this assignment. 
and surprise, his murder surprise, tell me solved. a little bit about David Mockett. He was hired by Lloyds to investigate? That's right. So David was kind of an elite version of the person the insurance company sends if like a tree falls on your garage. Uh, he was a, a, a claims adjuster, but on massive scale for huge maritime accidents. And he lived uh, most of his career in the Middle East. He was based in Yemen at this time. And he was sort of an elite surveyor. He was the guy you called uh, when you had uh, a complex maritime accident, or, or in this case, a pirate attack that needed to be looked into by Lloyds. Uh, and he stayed in Yemen longer than he should have, certainly. Uh, I mean, Yemen is hardly, um, hardly Massachusetts, is it? No, uh, indeed. And it was okay. I think in the early 2000s, uh, it was more or less okay. By 2011, when we joined the story, the Arab Spring has come to Yemen. Uh, it had a, a sort of baroquely corrupt dictator named Ali Abdullah Saleh, sort of in the Mubarak mold in Egypt. There were huge protests. It was getting very dangerous. But uh, David stayed, and, and he, he stayed too long, as it turned out. So he he got murdered. I mean, presumably, did he did he just disappear? How was he murdered? He was killed by a car bomb that was placed under the seat of his car. I shouldn't be laughing, uh, but it is. <laughs> I, I mean, wasn't there immediate suspicion? I mean, a, a guy's investigating a fraud. I guess he was investigating a number of frauds. Or was he focused on the, the brillante virtuoso? Okay. He had a few other assignments. Uh, and the crucial thing is, well, there are two crucial things. One is, at this moment, nobody knew it was a fraud. Uh, at, at that time, it was just a pirate attack. And the other thing that, that kept some of the suspicion away from this crime for a while was the instability of Yemen. People were getting killed all the time, uh, perhaps not in such a targeted manner. You know, a lot of the deaths were kind of accidental, wrong place, wrong time sort of things. Uh, but initially, it was blamed on terrorism. And, and that was an explanation that made a lot of sense, to certainly to the UK government at the time. And what about Lloyd's? I mean, they were the ones, presumably he's getting them off the hook, is he? David uh, Market, that if he found that it was fraud or some sort of conspiracy, they wouldn't have to pay out? Well, there's something interesting about that, which is one of the, one of the fun facts about Lloyd's uh, is that fraudulent claims are paid out at Lloyd's all the time. And this is something that uh, any participant in the Lloyd's market, certainly in the marine part, which is where the big money is at Lloyd's, will tell you off the record. You know, no, no one will ever say it publicly. But uh, there are dodgy claims made uh, to Lloyds of London very regularly. Uh, it's very hard to prove fraud. It's also not good for business to accuse your clients of fraud. You know, it's a bit like the old line that if you owe the bank a million dollars, it's your problem. And if you owe the bank a billion dollars, it's their problem. If you're a really big Lloyds client, uh, the odds that they are going to go after you for an alleged fraud are very slim. So even when fraud is suspected, uh, they do often pay out at least some of what's being claimed. And Matt, just remind us, because uh, I've always been a little bit confused by this, I have to admit, how does Lloyd's work? Who owns Lloyd's? The important thing to know about Lloyd's is it is not an insurer. Uh, it is something called the Corporation of Lloyds, which essentially functions as a market for insurers. It, it's, it's a physical location, above all, where actual insurers, you know, AIG, Chubb, uh, Prudential, names you would know, 
come to chop up bits of risk. So when there is a very large liability, an oil tanker, for example, or an oil rig or a space station, no one insurer wants to be on the hook for the whole thing. So the function of Lloyd's is to take that big risk, which might be worth a billion dollars, and slice and dice it between perhaps dozens or, or even hundreds of individual insurers so that if the worst happens, uh, no one is out too much money themselves. And, and it is owned uh, by the members, by, by the participants in the market as kind of a cooperative. One of the blurbs for your book is from Oliver Buller, who's been on the show, author of Moneyland, a wonderful book and a wonderful conversationalist, or they're very chilling as well. Talking, he talked to me, he's been on the show a couple of times about following the dirty money that floods our global economy. He has a very excellent book, uh, Kleptopia. To what extent, um, Matthew, is it surprising or surprise, surprise, wink, wink, that all this would take place? in London, uh, around an organization <laughs> like Lloyd's, which itself is somewhat mysterious. Look, I think if you're familiar with Oliver's work and, and Tom Burgess's work, uh, it becomes not too surprising at all. Uh, you know, I, I uh, think London is a very hospitable place, or certainly was until recently, for shady people in all kinds of businesses, shipping being one of them. There's been a bit of a reckoning around that uh, with respect to Russian oligarchs in the last few months. I, I think it would be very interesting to see if that goes beyond that specific. Yeah, Bruno just wrote a book. He, he was on uh, talking about how London is the center of, of this dirty economy. So when did, when, I, I mean, you wrote this piece in 2017. Did you expose it or did, did somebody else? Well, the, one of the funny things about this is a lot of the key facts were out there in the sense that there was litigation uh, that if you bothered to turn up, uh, as, as we did uh, at the High Court in London, you could uh, hear about a lot of the salient facts, but it wasn't being covered. It wasn't really known about. It was sort of hidden in plain sight. So uh, this 2017 story uh, did lay out kind of the basics, although unbeknownst to Kit and I at the time, there was some very dramatic stuff going on uh, just off stage at the moment. We literally at the moment we published that piece uh, involving some whistleblowers coming forward at great danger to themselves uh, that then becomes the subject of sort of the back third of the book. So, so actually we came to it sort of midstream, although we didn't quite realize it at the time. And were you in any way, you know, I can make some jokes about car bombs, but it's not funny if you're involved. Um, were you concerned with your own personal safety here? We had to be very careful. Uh, there are serious people involved in this story. Uh, there are a lot of people who've gotten hurt and several, more than several of the sources we spoke to were genuinely terrified for their safety. So Kit and I were warned uh, in official fashion by the police, uh, also by some of our sources that we need to be careful you know, I don't think the risk is generally to us. I think the risk is usually to sources, uh, whereas, you know, we are lucky enough to work for a big international media organization. We have a public profile. But yeah, absolutely. Physical security was something we had to think about. I mean, the astonishing thing is that in uh, that the British High Court found that the the attack was faked and instigated by the vessel's owner, Marios Ilya Poulos, he sounds like a character out of Tintin or something, and yet he's still free. I mean, how did they determine that? 
And to what extent is this now an open and shut case of fraud? So there was, in the end, there were actually two and a half trials, civil trials in London. There was incredibly complex civil litigation in which, uh, yeah, there was a there was an absolute mountain of evidence pointing to this apparent pirate attack having been fake, a fraud, a hoax. Um, that resulted in a ruling at the high court uh, in the favor of the insurers that this was fraudulent and that Iliopolis, uh, the ship owner, was responsible. Uh, there have been criminal investigations or attempted criminal investigations over the years, but uh, British law enforcement, I think to their great discredit, uh, have dropped the ball again and again. Uh, and, you know, I, I don't want to, I don't want to sugarcoat uh, the role of agencies like the FBI or, or the DOJ in the U.S., but you could certainly not imagine a scenario where in the, if this occurred in the United States with American companies where this would not have been prosecuted. Uh, but in Britain, they were happy yeah, I mean, to but, uh, put it I in the be particularly surprised by this. Um, but to what, I, I understand that it was, I guess, a, 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 a fraudulent attempt to take money from Lloyd's. But how else was this a British case, given that the quote-unquote crime took place in, in the Gulf of Aden and the murder of Mocket took place in Yemen? Well, as far as the fraud goes, the simplest reason that it, this was a matter of British jurisdiction uh, was that the insurance contract was uh, signed in London and governed by English law. So any disputes about that insurance contract uh, end up, you know, as a matter of course, uh, in the Admiralty Courts in London. So in that sense, uh, the insurance side, the fraud side, is absolutely a matter for British jurisdiction. Uh, the murder is trickier. Clearly, David uh, was murdered in Yemen, obviously, you know, a country where uh, not only is there no British police presence, of course, there's really no British presence at all anymore. Uh, so jurisdictionally, uh, that was out of British control. Uh, you know, I don't think anyone realistically expected a British prosecution of David's murder. But the fact that there's never been a, a British prosecution on the fraud side, uh, I find shocking. And could David's family sue uh, some of these people supposedly involved? Or is that too complicated? That's a very good question. Uh, I, I'm sure it's something they've considered. And I suspect we're not at the end of the story uh, in that respect. Uh, but yeah, there would be there would be civil remedies open to them, potentially. And tell me a little bit about this Iliopolis. Is he the sort of character who could have walked in and out of a Tintin novel? Uh, yeah, actually, that's about right. So Iliopolis, uh, Marius Iliopolis, is a very wealthy Greek ship owner, shipping tycoon. Uh, he owns uh, a whole lock of, a whole whack of oil tankers, as well as uh, one of the biggest ferry companies in Greece. Uh, one of the inter interesting things about him is he has a hobby of rally racing. Uh, he is, by all accounts, a very good rally driver. He does very well at it. Uh, you know, so he careens down hillsides, you know, at 90 miles an hour uh, in, in souped up cars, which uh, requires a certain uh, boldness and disregard for risk How old is that, he? that I think would serve you well. Uh, he's in his late 50s. And uh, he lives in Greece? Yes. And I suspect, uh, given what's happened with the Brillante case, uh, he is not leaving Greece, uh, certainly not to any country. So he doesn't have a, a house in Mayfair or in the south of France or in Florida. He's not someone who can just go to the UK or, or Western Europe or the United States. 
No, he's very rooted in Greece. Uh, and he was arrested on one occasion in the UK, although he was released the same day uh, for suspected fraud in relation to, to the Berlante. Uh, I think he would be very unwise to ever go back to the UK while prosecution was a possibility. So he's sticking close to home. And, you know, Greece is pretty I was nice. I to say, uh, Matt, that it's, I remember that Greece is part of the EU, but then I forgot that Britain isn't anymore. So uh, maybe... I mean, if Britain was still part of the EU, might that have played a role in bringing this man to justice? I think it probably would have made things a little bit easier. Uh, but the issue here is not the EU. The issue is Greece. Uh, Greece is very reluctant to extradite its own citizens for any reason. Especially and a wealthy, when, powerful one. Is he well, there you go. well connected? Yes. And, and look, I don't want to scandalize anyone, but... Um, Greece is not well, the most uncorrupt country. I want scandal, Matt. Yeah. That's why you're on the show. Yeah, uh, Greece is perhaps not uh, not the cleanest country in Europe, uh, <laughs> and I think there are a lot of there are a lot of very well founded questions about the integrity of the judicial system in particular. And presumably, if they had a smoking gun of some sort, this guy would simply claim, "Well, this person was responsible, but I didn't know anything about it." I mean. How much evidence is there that he knew what was happening or that this was all instigated through him? And, and, and also, and I haven't asked this before, I mean, how much money was involved? How much did they make out of this presumably false claim? Well, I'll do the money part first. So, so the total value of the insurance claim here was about 180 million US dollars. So it's big. You know, even at Lloyd's, that's a lot of money. Um, in terms of evidence directly linking Iliopoulos to the fraud, uh, there was a, a huge amount, actually, that ended up being aired in the trial, the civil trial in the UK. And, and that allowed uh, the judge, Justice Tier, to find that Iliopoulos was directly responsible. You know, there were emails, there were there was testimony of phone conversations between Iliopoulos and the plotters who pulled this all off. Uh, what there is not, and I should stress, is evidence uh, linking Iliopoulos to the murder of David Mockett. Uh, he's never been charged with anything like that, and, and no judge has ever found that he was involved. But as you suggested, it's unlikely that the, Yemen, the Yemeni police, if there are any, are certainly focused on other things. Is this an Interpol issue now, the, the murder of David Mockett? Unfortunately, I think it's a nobody issue. Uh, this did end up with the Metropolitan Police and the National Crime Agency in the UK. The NCA is, is kind of Britain's attempt to replicate the FBI, uh, although they have a, a really terrible track record. Uh, one of our uh, key characters in the book, Nick Connor, uh, refers to the NCA as never caught anybody. Um, so they, uh, you know, went through the motions of an investigation. They requested some information from other countries, but... It just ran out of steam, you know, a long time ago, far away. It's not a priority for anybody, unfortunately. Matt, last year we had a show with a couple of left-wing academics, Liam Campling and Alejandro Colas. They have a new book out, Capitalism and the Sea, the Maritime Factor in the Making of the Modern World. They're no great fans of capitalism, but I don't think even they could have concocted this kind of story. To what extent are there broader lessons from your book about the corrupt nature of at least maritime capitalism? I mean, are there, do you think that there are many other cases like this which haven't been reported? This is undoubtedly a spectacular and unique case, but 
the amount of bad behavior at sea, you know, in the shipping industry is enormous. It's totally unregulated. Uh, the shipping industry enjoys all kinds of regulatory dodges and legal dodges that nobody else does. You know, my favorite one, and this, this absolutely blew my mind when I learned it, is it's totally normal for even a giant oil tanker, giant container ship to be owned anonymously, you know, for governments and insurers and port authorities and everyone else dealing with it to have no idea who the ultimate owner is behind some shell company, you know, in the Marshall Islands or, or some other tax haven. Uh, that to me is totally wild. And as you can imagine, you know, that enables all sorts of bad behavior uh, all over the world all the time. And it's probably no, not surprising then that the center of the global shipping industry is in Greece itself, a country with a, a weak state and a, a colorful 20th century history uh, in terms of business and the state. Yeah. Uh, and, and Greek ship owners, I mean, that's a book in itself is, is how the Greek ship owners came to dominate the world. You know, Greeks uh, are responsible for about uh, 16 or 17 percent of global shipping by tonnage. That's the estimate, which, you know, for a country, the population of Illinois, uh, whose other main export is olive oil, uh, is just amazing. Uh, and yeah, that's, that's the result of a lot of government support for the shipping industry. It's also the result of uh, Aristotle Onassis and Stavros Niarchos, the great shipping tycoons of the 60s, who built the industry, created the model, uh, really came up with the offshore finance part of it, with the secrecy part, flags of convenience, which is something we can talk about. Uh, this very unique model was originated by Greeks, and they've taken advantage of it. And given what's happening in the Ukraine, which, of course, is not that far from Greece, and given the potential imminent crisis in Taiwan, how fearful should we be about this corrupt maritime industry and its um, and the ease which which not only crimes are committed, but presumably money is laundered? Well, I think I think you can separate it a little bit from geopolitics. Um, you know, one of the things about the shipping industry that has allowed it to escape regulation over the years is that it works extremely well, that it's delivered, you know, huge gains in terms of the cost of goods, uh, taking friction out of the global economy. And so ship owners can say to governments, you know, don't mess with us. You don't want to you don't want to do anything to diminish the value of the golden goose. Uh, so, look, if, if there is a conflict over Taiwan or, a conf or, or the Ukraine conflict worsens, you know, ships are still going to get through. They're still going to deliver what they need to deliver. Um, I do think, though, as a matter of, you know, if we're looking at things like terrorist financing, money laundering, uh, fraud, environmental crimes, uh, shipping is a really problematic industry and that needs to be looked into very seriously, above all by the U.S. government, which is the only actor that probably could do it. Yeah, it's interesting. We're always so critical of the U.S., particularly within the U.S., but this is an important reminder that the U.S. is still the world's policeman if it does have a policeman. What about the role of these two ex-cops? Uh, you wrote a piece with uh, your partner, Kit uh, Sh uh, Shalel, in, um, in 2022. Who are these ex-cops who cracked the mystery? So uh, Richard Veal and Michael Connor are the two kind of main characters of the second half of the book. Uh, 
They are former Met Police detectives from London. Um, they are, um, Richard is a real, a genuine Cockney. Uh, Mick is not a Cockney, although he's sort of a, um, sort of a Michael Caine character. Uh, these guys are, you couldn't make them up. They're real hard boiled police detectives. They're also hilarious. Who, who were they uh, and, working and, for though? Were they working for one of the, were they working for Lloyd's or were they working for the, 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 the Mocket family? They were hired by the Lloyd's insurers, not Lloyd's itself, but the insurers within the Lloyd's market who were on the hook for the loss of the Berlante. So they hired uh, Richard and Michael, Mick and Dick to uh, get to the bottom of what happened. And um, when the movie gets made, um, Michael Caine's probably a bit old. I'm sure they can find some other neo-Cockney actors. What did they do? How smart were they? What did they find that sort of well, makes they, the case pretty self-evident? They started with paperwork, with, first of all, establishing who owned the Berlante, which was not known to begin with, that Mario Ciliopoulos was the, the UBO, the ultimate beneficial owner was not known even to the people who'd insured his oil tanker. So first, uh, Richard in particular had to figure that out. Uh, then they had to go find witnesses and they did. Uh, they tracked down witnesses all over the world, in fact, and, and they flipped uh, a crucial whistleblower who laid out the whole thing uh, and who was an insider who'd been involved with this conspiracy. They had a series of you know, high stakes meetings with him in, in hotels uh, around Europe uh, he was in great danger. You know, they worried that someone might come in and try and shoot him or shoot them. Uh, and, and ultimately, you know, that evidence proved very important in blowing the lid off this whole thing. And speaking of blowing the lid off the whole thing, was the whole thing just staged? They just blew the ship up? Uh, yeah, <laughs> in a word, yes. Uh, the pirate so attack. They did lose the ship. Away. So there was some value lost. Uh, there was some value left, yes, although what was left was the oil. Uh, so the oil cargo, which was worth about $100 million, was preserved, although some of it was stolen, which is a whole other story. Uh, the, but the ship itself, the actual, the hull, as they call it, was a total write-off. It was still floating, but, but in financial terms, it was what they call a constructive total loss. So it was as though it had been on the bottom of the sea. But that's how burned out it was. And presumably then the entire crew was in on this fraud. Uh, certainly some of the crew were in on the fraud. I think that's, that's clear from the litigation. Uh, probably not all of them. Uh, but on these ships, you know, if you do want to pull something off, you, you may only need a couple of people. And if those couple of people, you know, as has been alleged in this case, are the captain and the chief engineer, uh, you can get quite a lot done. So, the, so there was a fire, there was some sort of explosion, and then they all... They all left. Was anyone injured or killed in the actual explosion and sinking? Uh, miraculously not. Uh, nobody was killed. There was no oil spill. Uh, the crew were picked up by a U.S. Navy cruiser that was in the area. So uh, the only person, the only direct, uh, the only person involved who was killed around the time of this incident was David Mockett. Uh, and then, you know, there was another mysterious death later, which, which is a slightly different subject. And then um, some other people who were uh, had their lives threatened uh, to the point of having to be evacuated by, you know, armed mercenaries uh, in one case from Greece and another from Yemen.
but uh, the, the, the only person at the, at the outset who was killed was David Hawkins. Real pirates must be rather miffed with this, don't you think? That they, <laughs> I mean, if you're a real pirate in the Gulf of Aden, I, I don't know what you'd think of this. They're, I guess they can't claim innocence. I mean, how, imp- how dangerous is the Gulf of Aden and how uh, prevalent is piracy? So at the time when the book starts in 2011, piracy was epidemic. There were attacks every two or three days. A lot of them were successful. The shipping industry, the insurance industry were really tearing their hair out about what to do. And were they coming from um, Ethiopia, Somalia? or From Somalia. Exclusively from Somalia. Uh, Because as a pirate, so they could basically do whatever they like. Exactly. The most important thing for pirates is you need an ungoverned shore to operate from because any country with a government is going to take out pirates pretty quickly. Uh, In the last few years, uh, piracy in that part of the world has gotten a lot better. And largely that's for one reason, which is armed guards on ships. Uh, It actually took a surprisingly long time for the industry to come around to that as a solution. But uh, once they did, and there was someone with a gun or or better yet, a few people with a gun on a good number of commercial vessels that really brought the problem to a stop. Uh, It has shifted though. The big hotspot now is the Gulf of Guinea, West Africa, where, you know, there are, we're not talking about failed states, but, but in some cases failing states. And certainly there are parts of Nigeria, for example, uh, where the coast is pretty ungoverned. So it, it is a big problem now in that part of the world. I mean, it's a depressing story. Um, and the, one of the more encouraging, the only encouraging thing is I think you're all, we always hear about the crisis of journalism, but you spent four years reporting on this. You work for Business Week, which is a very credible, um, Bloomberg Business Week, which is a very credible news magazine. Um, you obviously sold the book, but you do uh, these big projects. Another big story you broke was how Goldman Sachs lost $1.2 billion of Libya's money it's in, a, in an odd way, a similar sort of thing. Um, it's an, it, it, to me, it's encouraging that there are still journalists like you. Um, is, is Business Week supportive of, of this kind of endeavor? Presumably are in these kind of books. Yeah, look, Kit and I have been very fortunate to work for Bloomberg, which is really committed to ambitious journalism, particularly ambitious journalism that has to do with money. And yeah, we've had a series of bosses who've given us the time and space to do really hard, complex stories and also to write books. Uh, So yeah, look, this, this trade is alive and well despite the broader crisis in the industry. And, and that's true for us at Bloomberg. That's true for the Wall Street Journal, true for the New York Times, uh, the FT, Reuters. You know, at the, at the high end, actually, the media is kind of thriving, uh, yeah, even though there got, is a broader uh, crisis. And, and the book's been very well reviewed uh, uh, all over the place, New York Times, uh, New Republic. So it's congratulations on that. You missed... Um, you missed the FTX story, Matt. I hear that Michael Lewis is writing a book about that one. Yeah, I, I wish uh, I wish I'd been on that though. I probably couldn't couldn't compete with Michael. Uh, and what are you working on now? Any any new scandal in international capitalism? What's the next frontier uh, after I, fake hijacking of boats? 
I do fake, have another fake, book. Fake, uh, you know, uh, fake terrorism on, on oil rigs or oil uh, tankers. I do have uh, another book project in the works, which I, I can't quite talk about yet, except to say uh, it involves a lot of fraud and conspiracy, but uh, very terrestrial this time uh, and, and, and rooted, in, rooted in my part of the world in Southeast Asia. Well, the FT are going to do their, I think they've got a, a party at the beginning of, uh, in London, at the beginning of December. Are you going to be going? Is it a dinner? I will be there December 5th at the, at the V&A. Well, best of luck. Uh, some of my friends are also, I don't, I'm not saying I want you to win, but someone has to win. And so it'd be great if it was you. Uh, best of luck, uh, Matthew, and congratulations on, on the book. Uh, uh, and all the awards it's won. I'm assuming it's doing well. It's it's a great read. I you don't want to give away all the story. It reads like a thriller, but it's a real life thriller. What else would you um, recommend? What else uh, are you reading that you're enjoying these days? Um, well, I've just written. I've just read. Excuse me. Uh, a fantastic book by someone I'm a great fan of, Jonathan Friedland, uh, wow. called The Escape Artist, uh, which I think is shortlisted for the Bailey Gifford prize in the uk is that a novel uh, no it's a it is it is non-fiction it's history it is about uh the only or, or one of the only jewish prisoners who to successfully escape from auschwitz uh and the number of uh auschwitz inmates who pulled that off is less than five uh and and jonathan's gone incredibly deep on the most incredible story among them uh, this, you know, young man who broke out, you know, hoping to warn the world uh, and, and put a stop to what he'd witnessed. And, and, you know, as we all know, it didn't quite work out that way. But the book is absolutely fantastic. What's it called? The Escape Artist. 